Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Apollo 11 Beyond the Moon. I'm Brian Stelter, CNN's chief media correspondent and an amateur space buff. I'm a super fan of the CNN film Apollo 11. It's already won a bunch of awards, and a lot of you have already seen it in theaters across the country. We loved the film so much that we decided to do this podcast to learn more about how the film was made and how the country was changed forever by putting a man on the moon. If you haven't seen the film yet, you're going to learn a lot about the mission and about movie making. And if you have seen the film, we're going to take you behind the scenes with additional stories you've never heard. Apollo 11, the film, will have its worldwide television premiere this summer on CNN. Before we jump in to today's episode with Apollo 11's director, Todd Douglas Miller, let's just take a minute to set the scene of America in 1969. Richard Nixon is president. The average income is $8,550. Woodstock is about to become the musical event of the century. Sesame Street is making its television debut. And the draft for the Vietnam War is beginning. There was so much going on. Such a consequential moment in time. But this was the most important event of them all. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This was the defining moment of American exceptionalism for an entire generation. Not only can we relive it now, 50 years later, I think we need to. There's a lot we need to learn from Apollo 11. So let's get right to it. Uh, joining me now is the director of the Apollo 11 film, Todd Douglas Miller. Todd, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. What you've done, what your team has done, uh, took my breath away several times during the film. I wondered for you, what what moment, what shot encapsulates the, the Apollo mission to you? Well, I think it's actually the launch of the Saturn V rocket. We worked for the better half of a year just to get that right. So anytime we would have, uh, you know, five, 10 minutes scenes, we would troop down to the uh, Smithsonian IMAX theater and then we would get the astronauts and their families in there. Is this what it sounded like? Is this what it felt like? Ah. And get some immediate feedback and, and go back into the edit suite and, you know, make it work till we wow. got it right. So you were using their memories to make it as real as humanly possible. That's right. What's remarkable about this film, of course, is you didn't shoot a single piece of footage. This is entirely an archival project. Uh, what does that mean for someone like you? 
Well, I think it's it made it a little bit easier in the sense that we didn't have to go out and shoot it. Uh, we had so many great cinematographers working on this. I could rattle off their names if you wanted me to, but the list goes on and on and on. And that's one of the advantages of, of, of dealing with uh, archival projects. But also in this one, uh, we had large format film, which was just unheard of to get you know access and, and to know that this stuff existed back then. How is it possible that there are videos from one of the most important moments in human history that that were somehow <laughs> hidden away, sitting on shelves where nobody knew. Well, if you put yourself in that time period during the Apollo missions, so you're dealing with the late 60s and 70s, they all happened um, in a very short amount of time. So the missions were happening sometimes uh, one month after the other. So you had these cameramen down there that were shooting around the clock. And a lot of that footage, because it was all film footage, was being processed at labs down in Florida. And they were getting sent away. There was duplication of those materials uh, being sent to various NASA facilities. And ultimately, a lot of that footage, particularly the large format footage, 65 millimeter, 70 millimeters, all pre-IMAX large format footage, uh, made its way into the National Archives uh, archival system. So we like to say that it's just an absolute testament to the artistry, the cinematography, but it's also uh, a real testament to the archive preservation system working, that these materials were kept in cold storage for decades and happily, you know, waiting for someone like, you know, us and our, our team to come along and our, unearth, unearth them. So our taxpayer dollars at work. That's correct. Some value with, with the government archiving all this material. Uh, and then it takes a corporation and filmmakers to come along and, and dig it up and yeah. turn it into this. Yeah, and it really, the stars really aligned. Um, we just happened to be, we're based in New York, and we were working with a post-production facility that was dealing with some newer technology in the film scanning business, uh, when a lot of the companies, a lot of these post houses were getting out of that business. So we presented a new way of doing things in a cost-effective manner. Uh, we were willing to take on uh, all the materials. We didn't care how long it took. I, I could speak for myself wanting to direct a space film if, I was, if this was going to be the one that I'd want to know every single frame of film footage, soundbite, still image that was in existence mm -hmm. uh, so we could tell the story in the most accurate way. And how many hours of footage did you ultimately have at your disposal? So believe it or not, we're still quantifying it um, <laughs> because it's still with our agreements with the National Archives where we're still in the process of dealing with the holdings and the collections. But all told, uh, we deal in real counts um, and also in, in data storage and what's been digitized. Right. So we're approaching about two petabytes of data. How, wait, and then, how much is that? It's a lot. <laughs> a lot, a lot of terabytes. But then real-wise, we had about close about 500 uh, reels, and that includes a couple hundred of the large format reels, and then also all the 16, the original 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter as well. And for people who aren't big movie buffs, who don't know the lingo, what makes large format uh, so exceptionally special? If you can just imagine, it's just, it's pure math. If you look at traditional films that if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, traditionally you were watching 35 millimeter and the film width was literally 35 millimeters in length. So 65 millimeter is just double that once it's printed to 70. So it's just better quality. Uh, it's all chemistry, you know, because it's <laughs> film. When we came along, we actually, people are familiar with the term 4K. We did a ton of testing um, with, with our post-production facility on the materials 
models, we settled on 8K, which is actually four times as, as much quality. But it's still the bandwidth was just absolutely brutal to deal with. We had to really develop workflows and storage solutions to be able to handle, you know, all the material. It's so striking because the actual television broadcast on the day of the moon landing was really low quality. You could barely tell what was going on at times. And when you show us this experience now, 50 years later, it's as if we're there on the moon. It just speaks to the difference between that live capability 50 years ago (laughs) versus uh, something that can be edited and produced and perfected, right? Yeah, I think the biggest response we've gotten is that people that lived through it, that were old enough to actually remember it, just say we had no idea that all of that was going on uh, because that's what they remember is just watching it on a slow scan signal that was being being back to the earth from the moon. Black and white, a lot of shadows. Scratchy audio. Yeah, and it, but it's also a real testament to the people that were involved in that project. I mean, to develop those technologies to be able, I mean, that was, you know, that was groundbreaking stuff. Not only the it television was. signal, but obviously, you know, just the computer systems, you know, to be able to, to go to the moon. Yeah, there are hundreds, hundreds of astonishing feats. One of them was to be able to broadcast it live. And yet what we see through your film is that there were so many angles that viewers weren't seen at the time. So tell us about the movie making. The, the idea, for example, to build suspense by using the metrics at the bottom of the screen where you sometimes display the speed, the distance, the time as the mission launched and then landed on the moon and then returned to Earth. Uh, where did that idea come from? Well, we had a lot of really great people working on the on the film. We just put together a really great team. Most of everyone uh, that worked on it, I'd worked with with for over a decade. Uh, so we all kind of felt like we were in our prime when this you know came along. We all kind of dealt in shorthand. The one division uh, that was new to us was NASA's historian uh, department, uh, the historical division led by Bill Barry, and we challenged them time and time again to just try just to continually strive for accuracy, whether it was um, in the narrative of the film or if it was throwing up a graphic, dealing with the velocity of the command module yeah. as, it, you know, as it was spinning around the earth. Yeah. So a lot of that had been broadcast actually live by the public affairs officer that was in mission control. So you had transcripts of that, uh, but to try to match it with the telemetry data as well, I had never really seen that done in a kind of an entertaining way. I'd seen like, you know, the, the big cable channel, you know, specials that, you know, uh, the uber nerd, you know, version of it, which I love. And I could say that because I'm an honorary member, but (laughs) I just wanted it to feel like you were going on a, you know, on an adventure uh, of sorts that was based in uh, reality. We always joked in the team that this, you were, we wanted to feel like it was Dunkirk in space, meaning that you went, you got dropped into a situation, you went there and hopefully you made it back okay. And the graphical reinforcement of velocity, uh, how high they were, and, and what they were doing, too, was always something I wanted to articulate through graphics on the screen. Mm. Michael Collins, for instance, does this amazing maneuver where after they, they're they in uh, Earth orbit, they light the candle to go to the moon. And it's a big deal to light. Every time you light an engine in space, it's a big deal. But he lights it, and then they separate. And they're traveling 25,000 miles per hour plus. And he, they separate from, you know, from the third stage. He does a 180 and then dot. 
rocks with both spacecraft traveling through the vacuum of space at that speed. And it's an incredible achievement in what they did. So you don't get that sense a lot of times in fiction and nonfiction films that I had seen before. So I wanted people to feel that. And that was one way to depict it. And I'm going to use that as a plug because Michael Collins is on our next episode. Uh, So we will talk with him about that maneuver and, and so much more. Tell us about the various materials that you all brought in uh, to to make this. I mean, the scene, for example, that shows the physical touchdown of the spacecraft carrying Buzz and Neil. How was that video footage generated? Was that a series of photographs that were sped up or was it true video? Yeah, I mean, two of my favorite shots in cinema history, forget about whether they're in documentaries or fiction films, are the landing of the lunar module during the Apollo 11 mission, which was shot by Buzz Aldrin through, you know, with a 16 millimeter camera out the limb window uh, during touchdown. We show it in the film as an unbroken shot. It always pains me when people break it up. It's beautiful. Uh, There's a reason why the astronauts themselves are American Society of Cinematographer members. My second favorite is Michael Collins uh, shot the lunar module coming off of the surface of the moon through the command module window. And they're just absolutely amazing. These guys trained for years on, you know, how to operate these systems. Uh, And it just wasn't the film cameras. uh, It was also the stills. The mission of Apollo 11 wasn't to necessarily photograph. Uh, They were there to land safely on the moon and get home. But what they, they did do was still, they still photographed 1,025 images spread across seven magazines of 70 millimeter Hasselblad, not to be confused with the film footage, uh, but it's gorgeous. I mean, and it stands the test of time. It's, you know, you throw that up on a big screen or and it's just it's, it's just jaw dropping uh, to see the, you know, the artistry that these astronauts had. And what kind of reactions have you been getting uh, as this film is seen, both by by older folks who remember the mission and by younger people who may not have any real sense of what happened on the Apollo missions? Yeah, it's I'm constantly amazed at the reaction we're getting. You know, people that have lived through it have seen something new. Um, I have three kids myself and a lot of us on the team have kids. So they were always around, you know, during the edits and going through. And there were any time we would show like the rocket lifting off my kids would, you know, everybody would just stand there. And I, you know, I'm just always floored at how many kids show up to the theaters and, and come to the screening. What do you want them to inspired. learn from it? What do you want your kids to learn? From I want it? them to take a very optimistic approach to the future. And that is one that when hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people come together to accomplish something great, like what happened during Apollo 11 and spread across tens of thousands of companies, this wasn't just NASA, this was tens and, and tens of thousands of companies. I want the future generation to take from that, that they we can do that again. Uh, we have the ability if, uh, you know, we all come together for a common goal. Todd, thanks so much. Thank you. Great talking with you. And coming up next, uh, we're going to speak with Stephen Slater. He's an archivist who can take us inside the intricate editing process that made this film possible. That's all coming up in just a moment here. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. 
Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now, welcome back to Apollo 11, Beyond the Moon. I'm Brian Stelter, and I'm joined now by two incredible guests. Robert Perlman is a consultant for the film and the creator and editor of CollectSpace.com. And Stephen Slater is here. He's the archivist who pieced together the newfound audio with the archival footage. Stephen, we heard Todd describing earlier uh, the way that you would uh, match up the video and audio. Tell us more about how that worked. Well, basically, there were cameramen shooting what we refer to in the film business as B-roll. So they would shoot on 100-foot or 400-foot reels of film in Mission Control. They'd basically go in, uh, shoot some, a few shots of a console or a guy having a cigarette or speaking, and then they'd go out and come back an hour later and film another shot. And then all this stuff was randomly assembled together. And so it had only ever been seen mute like this. They didn't have sound recorders, and then it would be edited into NASA's public information films. And so I'd always seen this footage and thought, well, we really would like to see and hear what they're saying and have it put in the right timeline so that when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are landing on the moon, for example, you would see Charlie Duke, the capsule communicator, reacting. So that was the ethos behind trying to lip-sync the audio, but that actually, in practice, took a lot of very late nights and a lot of very dark rooms. This sounds like the, the definition of painstaking. Yeah, I didn't really have a social life for a very long time. Still don't <laughs> think I do. Really, but... So we're talking about months or years? What was this like? Well, I started this in, actually, as a personal kind of project in about 2010, and that was using the air-to-ground audio. And as we, as I just mentioned a minute, a minute ago, there is one man who can speak to the astronauts. He's called the Capcom. It was Charlie Duke in the case of the touchdown on the moon. But then as part of this project, we got access to 11,000 hours of what's called the 30-track audio recordings. So this, these are, if you think of all of these guys in Mission Control on their different consoles... They each have headsets on and they're each keyed into this loop. A team at the University of Texas in Dallas had designed with NASA a way of playing back these ancient, they were called 30-track tapes. Mm. So it's actually 60 channels of audio running through the whole mission. So whenever one of those guys were talking about something to do with the mission or talking to each other or talking to the flight director, they would key in on this loop. And so as well as having this... Uh, 
the air to ground audio i also had all this 60 channels of audio to work with as well and so literally when you if you saw the guidance officer speaking i would be able to go to that part of the mission and then keep trying out different phrases to see what fitted wow um and actually we had a um an amazing member of our team uh, ben feist who's a software developer in toronto he designed a way of correcting all this audio the deficiencies and essentially giving me a pro, pro tools style uh project so that i could go to any point in the whole mission and find what i wanted to look for and then isolate any one of those channels and then try and add it to the footage so mm. there's a kind of uh short summary of <laughs> a very tedious process anyway what do you think listeners what do you think viewers uh, get to learn that we wouldn't have otherwise learned uh, thanks to this? It's the reason that I started doing it is that I want people to see things as they happen. So it's effectively Todd. What I want to give him is it, it, it's as if he had his own cameraman in the room at the time. So you're you're giving him that freedom, the editorial freedom to show things show the real things i always find the real thing far more powerful than any kind of substitute shot or cutaway or b-roll which as we say is kind of why this material existed in the first place it was b-roll and now we've made it not b-roll because the film is so cinematic i constantly kept reminding myself this really happened this is not a dramatization this is not a a fictional version Uh, robert to that point why was the discovery of the large format, a 70 millimeter tape, so crucial to this film's development? Well, I think that, you know, like you watching the film, uh, you know, I've, I've read, studied, watched every bit of film that was up, uh, available up to that point. And yet when I watch this film, no matter how many times I've, I've seen it in edits or in the final product, I'm always on the edge of my seat. Like, will they make it this time? And that's a large part due to the um, due to the the quality of the film that we now have available. Um, it it brings a sense of 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 immediacy of it being current, even though it's fifty years old. And it also brings us a new view into an event that, by all by all accounts, was iconic. It had so much iconic imagery associated with it and has been seen by so many over the years that we have reached a point where watching that film while still that that iconic 16-millimeter and 35-millimeter film is still exciting, it's, it's more of a familiar view. But this is brand new. This gives a look into the history of the, of the mission um, that hasn't been seen before and and makes it new again, makes all of it new again. And through that newness, we get an opportunity to re-examine the mission, both from a, from a uh, researcher's side, a historian's side, but also for the general public to to find a new way to identify with it. More than 50% of the American public w- today was not alive for the moon landings. I wasn't. I was born in 1976. And so for uh, many of the people watching the film, it is their first it may be their first time seeing the mission presented in whole that they've seen the iconic clips that have been pulled out in documentaries 
for many years as the highlights of Apollo 11. But this gives them the opportunity to see what it was really like to experience the mission in 1969. Yeah. And Stephen, does it feel to you like the, the staffers who were rolling the cameras back then, especially with this, this large format tape, they had an eye toward history, didn't they? I believe so. And I also believe there was a, a very savvy guy who was the in charge of p- public relations at NASA called Julian Shear. And he actually commissioned, well, we know that he commissioned some of this footage for a, a documentary called Moonwalk One. And the ethos behind Moonwalk One, which was designed to be a kind of avant-garde view of the first moon landing. It was released in 1970. It, it didn't get a huge following then, but it's become a kind of cult classic. The ethos behind it was to create a time capsule that could be dug up and people in future generations could see, well, that's how this happened. Ah. And that's obviously the way I interpreted that before is that we're talking about the finished film, but in our case, we're looking at the source material and not just the source material from Moonwalk 1, but all kinds of other 70 mil footage that he presumably commissioned. We're not entirely 100% sure of the genesis of it. But at the end of the day, it's all about preserving this with the best camera technology available. And in the case of Moonwalk 1, the best cinematographers of the day were hired to do this. And that's why it looks as good as it does. So we owe a huge debt of gratitude to their skills. I can't help but think about how a moonwalk or a trip to Mars would be documented today. What kind of technology would be used and how many camera angles they would be. But but staying back in 1969, some of my favorite shots from the film are of the crowd waiting for the liftoff and all of that. And there was so little that they actually witnessed uh, after the launch. Uh, obviously, none of us were on board uh, the spacecraft, even though through this film, it feels like we are. So, Robert, I was hoping you could describe that process of recreating the sound uh, of the alarms that the astronauts were hearing right before they landed on the moon's surface. It really feels, as you're watching this film, like you are there. How, how did you all create that feel? Oh, well, a lot of um, a lot of work went into the sound editing for the film in terms of uh, capturing the sound of the Saturn V during launch um, from different distances. So you see you mentioned those crowds there. Yeah. Uh, they're miles away, but there are also shots in the film that were shot right on the pad using engineering cameras yeah, that did right not have audio. Right. And so t- those are two very different experiences. And one of the things that Todd really wanted to achieve was to, for the, maybe the first time, recreate that sound of the Saturn V so that it was it was realistic to the experiences of the different people where they were when they witnessed it. He kept on asking people who had been there, um, you know, does that does that sound like it? <laughs> uh, and and we got back very good foot, uh, very good uh, feedback on that. But you mentioned the alarms. Um, so as Neil and Buzz were uh, approaching the moon for a landing, they encountered or they had uh, alarms come up on their com- on their computer uh, in the form of alert codes. So it was a twelve oh two alarm or a twelve oh one alarm, and we hear as Stephen was mentioning through the thirty track. We hear for the first time the banter between the backroom mission control support people and the front room, the, the very uh, famous shot of, of mission control with the screen in front of what they're discussing in terms of giving a go or no go for that 
for for them to proceed with a landing. Right. What we don't hear in any of that in the original archival audio is the alarms that the astronauts are hearing, because unlike as it's been depicted in Hollywood films and such, it wasn't an audible alarm in the cabin. So no microphones were picking it up. It was only a tone within the, their earpieces, within the astronauts' earpieces. So realizing that and wanting to achieve authenticity throughout this entire film, uh, the question was posed, how do we find out what this sounded like? And digging through documents, um, because NASA documented everything, thankfully, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we found the original, uh, the original documentation that described not just how they arrived at what the sound should sound like, but describing it through in, in terms of its length, its, its decibel range, um, and, uh, and how it would be uh, perceived by the astronauts. Using that, we were able to give it to our sound editor, and he took it into the studio and was able to recreate that sound. So for the first time, we're hearing what the astronauts heard, actually heard, when those alarms, those critical alarms came on in the, in the cabin. It's incredible. It makes us all feel like we're a part of it. I, I wondered, Stephen, if, if any of the, the footage or the audio uh, that we see in the film, is any of it borrowed from other missions, or is this all Apollo 11? That's a very good question. And the answer is that, yes, there are occasions where we needed to take a certain liberty because, quite simply, not everything was filmed on Apollo 11. But I think where it's been done, it's been done very tastefully and only when kind of absolutely required. So it might be a better shot of the parachutes during re-entry. Robert might actually have something to say about that. So one good example of where we needed footage from another mission was a critical milestone of the flight called Translunar Injection, or TLI. This is the burn, or the engine burn, that's going to put the astronauts on a course away from Earth. They're leaving, leaving Earth orbit and heading off to the moon. Um, the astronauts were busy at that moment performing the burn, <laughs> so no one was holding up a camera out the window. In fact, none of the missions caught any footage during that, um, that very critical milestone. Um, and so the question is, how do you show that on screen? Because you can't ignore it. That's a major event during the mission. Um, so we looked in the transcripts and we looked in uh, the documentation that was available in terms of what was what were the astronauts seeing at the time. And it became clear through their own words that they were flying towards a, an orbital sunrise. The sun was coming up over the edge of the Earth um, and they were approaching the Terminator, the, the, the separation between night and day. And so um, and they comment on how beautiful it is. And so they, we would then be able to find from another mission footage from Earth orbit uh, of flying towards that same event, towards sunrise, ah. and, uh, and then use that to stand in for what they were actually seeing out the window. Right. And we then had the opportunity to show the film to Buzz Aldrin and to Mike Collins and ask them, was this what you saw? And, and they verified, yes, they did. Robert, what do you hope people learn when they watch this film? You know, it's it, it, Apollo Eleven is such a uh, is such a crowning achievement of what we are capable of doing as as humans as a species when we put our minds to it. I mean, there's even the saying, you know, if we can land a man on the moon, we can do anything. And in this case, we actually did. We put a man on the moon. 
two of them. And then another five missions followed. And so at the very least, I would hope that it would remind people today that we can achieve the impossible, no matter how big the, the or daunting the experience is. We have big challenges today on many fronts in space exploration and here on Earth. And, uh, and we hear politicians and others describe them as moonshots <laughs> for good reason. And so maybe watching this reminds them that, that no, no challenge is too big, that if we, put our, if we put our collective efforts towards a goal, we can achieve it. And then the other thing I, w I hope that it would inspire is an interest in the history of the program as we move forward outward into space. Um, we do have this goal of returning astronauts to the moon and then go on to Mars. And people without the space race being present today, it, it's sometimes questionable, why are we doing this? And maybe watching the history of, 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 of us landing on the moon for the first time and seeing the wonder and the bewilderment that came with it, that maybe we remember that there's more than just fear or... Um, immediate gain to be had from an activity like this. It is a, a it is an event in history that inspired science and math education here in the United States and around the world. It inspired us to dream big, and maybe that's what we need now. It can still inspire us today. Uh, Robert, Stephen, thank you both for being here. Great talking with you. Thank you. Oh, thanks. And again, we're looking forward to the worldwide television premiere of Apollo 11 on CNN this summer. Thanks so much for joining us and be sure to tune in for our next episode. Robert mentioned our guest a few minutes ago. Michael Collins, Apollo 11's command module pilot, will join us for a very special conversation coming up. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.